A private practice tapped to vaccinate CPS workers gets those doses taken away. The decision by CDPH officials today leaves us saddened and frankly disappointed in our local government. CDPH officials never made it clear to us as a provider that we should be storing vaccines in a refrigerator for people awaiting second doses. And why a 70% vaccination rate might not produce herd immunity. Once a certain percentage of the population is immune to a virus, either through vaccination or through prior infection, that virus is less likely to infect new people. Crane's healthcare reporter Stephanie Goldberg joins the podcast to explain why the idea of herd immunity is quite a bit different than we might think. The 70 to 90 percent range is like the estimate that we've got from public health experts who've been following this closely. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, March 24th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Stephanie Goldberg, Crane's healthcare reporter, here to talk about why a 70% vaccination rate might not produce herd immunity. Tell me about this, this reporting that you've done. The more I learn about herd immunity, the more I realize that I think the general population doesn't have a great understanding of what that really means. So like I'll start with a definition. I think that might be helpful. Herd immunity essentially is like once a certain percentage of the population is immune to a virus, either through vaccination or through prior infection, that virus is less likely to infect new people. But that percentage, like that threshold, differs based on the pathogen. So if something spreads very easily, like the virus that causes COVID, the percentage needs to be higher. For something like measles, which spreads even more easily than something like the virus that causes COVID, that percentage is like 94%. So the 70 to 90% range is like the estimate that we've got from public health experts who've been following this closely. The takeaway here is that reaching that 70% threshold that we have sort of like widely decided means that we can resume, you know, business as usual and maybe take our masks off. It's not a guarantee against future outbreaks, um, especially not in the case of a virus like the one that causes COVID, which mutates so quickly. So the takeaway here is that if vaccination rates lag in some areas, the virus could continue to circulate and infect new people sort of mutating along the way. And that's where we get these new variants, um, some of which might be more impervious uh, to vaccines. I thought also there was this the interesting idea that, that came up here in this piece, and that is that when we talk about herd immunity, I think most of us are guilty of just thinking of it in terms of this blanket thing where 90% of a given community would be or 70% or whatever of a given community would be vaccinated. But in fact, if you're looking at it in terms of regions of the world or cities in the U.S. or even neighborhoods in a city like ours, it suddenly is painting a very different picture. If you have you know, 90% of the city vaccinated, but 
the people who are not vaccinated are all clustered in one area, that's a very different deal than having 90% across the board. Yeah. And measles is like the big example that kept coming up in my reporting. It's like, we think about the fact that this is a, a very highly contagious virus, measles, and the risk is very low in the U.S. because we've been so good about having high rates of vaccination. But if there are like small pockets or, or certain communities that are under vaccinated, once that virus sort of penetrates that community, then an outbreak will erupt. And so that would be the same thing in the case of COVID. And then like you were talking about, Amy, it's we, we live in like a really small world. So like if you're on one side of the city, you're going to go to the other side of the city. So it really matters for everybody's health and safety, like what percentage of each individual community is vaccinated. It's not as simple as an across the board figure or percentage. And so when we're looking at local data, do you have a sense of what, what zip codes are leading and, and what zip codes are lagging behind? Yeah, the city has been really good about putting out this data, and it's really helpful to see and sort of compare some of these vaccination rates with mortality rates and also case rates. So um, like the one example that I used in the piece, and this data is as of March 17th. 4.4% of the population that resides in the zip code 60621, it's a notable example because that includes Englewood, which is one of the 15 high-need communities that Chicago has identified under its its vulnerability index, so high, high risk for transmission there. Um, so 4.4% of that population has been fully vaccinated. Um, so one dose in the case of Johnson & Johnson, two doses in the case of Pfizer and Moderna. That area, though, has one of the highest mortality rates per 100,000 people in the city. Across town, you look at like Lincoln Park, 60614, 14.1% of residents there have been fully vaccinated. And the mortality rate per 100,000 people there is much lower. So it is, there are some very stark contrasts here. And so what's the fix? What is the approach to, to make vaccination more equitable? The city is working very hard to address this, and they and they have been from the from the get go um, of their vaccination campaign. But for a number of reasons, it tends to be harder to reach people in communities that have been the hardest hit by COVID. So, as one example, there are transportation barriers. It's not easy for everybody to get themselves to a vaccination site or to a doctor's office, especially not during business hours. And also, we've talked a lot about this over the course of the vaccination campaign, but not everybody has the same internet access. So primarily, people are making appointments for vaccines, you know, using like ZocDoc, for example, the city's primary way of scheduling. There is a dial-in, you know, you can, you can call in, into a call center and make an appointment, but wait times are long. Uh, maybe you don't know the dial-in because you're not watching, you know, a, a press briefing that's streaming live. So so there are a lot of barriers here for certain communities. And it is very important that communities where physical distancing is harder, so either at home or at work, maybe it's a lot of essential workers that live in a certain area, the vaccination rates there need to be a little bit higher than in places where people are you know, can easily isolate or socially distance. Maybe they're working from home, you know, quick access to medical care. So there are a lot of differences at play here. And, and a lot of that has been addressed under the city's Protect Chicago Plus program, but it's clearly not an easy fix. And then there's the added wrinkle of uncertainty around how long a, a vaccine will last and whether or not they'll have to be repeated and, and all of that. 
Yeah, boosters are already sort of underway. Testing is being done on that front. I had my own sort of like jaw-dropping moment when I was talking to the Chicago Department of Public Health for this piece. Um, and a source had mentioned like, you know, we have a three-month period of known immunity. And I was like, hold on. <laughs> like three months? Like that's nothing in the scheme of things. We People who were vaccinated end of December, like – I mean, think about it in the in that context, and so it's there's a lot that we have yet to learn. Um, and I know a lot of studies right now that are underway to determine like natural immunity or uh, immunity, excuse me, from natural infection, how long that lasts. The thought process right now is somewhere between three months to nine months. It sounds like. Um, Although people are mounting different uh, different antibody responses based on you know the individual person and based on the type of case they had, so there's a lot of a lot of different factors that are at play here. But yeah, the the goal is to do this as fast as possible, and that is one very important reason why the underlying issue here that we have talked about a lot is the fact that there's a, a shortage of a supply. Like we don't have enough doses to to vaccinate everybody at once. I'm curious how herd immunity got the rap that it did? Because I don't think we were really saying that word. I mean, I don't think people, the general public, like outside of medical and 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 epidemiology people were necessarily using that term a lot until this, until the pandemic. And then suddenly, like, everybody has this term herd immunity, and they're using it a lot and leaning on it like, oh, we'll get to herd immunity at this point, at this point, at this point. And I think it's been interesting to watch it kind of become misunderstood in this way. I think some of the the public health experts and epidemiologists that I talked to feel the same. Um, like when I, one of the first people that I sort of tried to dig into this topic with was like, uh, well, for one thing, herd immunity is not like a steady state of being. Like once you achieve 70%, like you don't live there. This is a moving target. It has to do with the fact that we don't know how long immunity lasts and people are going to require boosters. They may not get those in time, you know, for a number of reasons. If someone previously was protected because they had recovered from COVID, you know, we don't know how long those antibodies are lasting. So it, everything's in flux, basically. Like once once you see the ticker hit 70%, like we are not in, in the clear necessarily. Yeah, more uncertainty ahead, indeed. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk this through. Thank you. Coming up, a downtown alderman is seeking a Thompson Center zoning change to tee up a potential sale. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Imagine if you had a Google Maps for your business, visualizing your path, guiding you to your destination while constantly optimizing your route to avoid accidents or traffic jams. Salonis's execution management system does exactly that. It pulls data from your existing systems, visualizes any business process, and automatically recommends or automates actions to take to achieve your business goals. Companies like Uber, Dell, Siemens, and L'Oreal are using Salonis to improve their processes and maximize their company's potential. Visit salonis.com slash get dash started to learn how your company can unlock its full potential. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
In the wake of the vaccine controversy surrounding Loretto Hospital, the Chicago Department of Public Health is cracking down on providers they say aren't sticking to the city's guidelines. The department announced on Tuesday it has stopped distributing vaccines to Innovative Express Care, the Northside Primary Care, Urgent Care and Behavioral Health Practice run by Dr. Rahul Kare. We always ensured that there were enough allocations for additional doses for all of CPS employees. CDPH said in a statement that Innovative, quote, knowingly misallocated more than 6,000 doses of vaccine, including using vaccine allotted for second doses for first dose appointments instead. As a result, CDPH said it will reclaim all vaccine distributed and stored at Innovative. The healthcare system said in a statement, quote, we strongly disagree with the allegations made by the Chicago Department of Public Health. To be clear, Innovative Express Care has vaccinated eligible individuals in a phased approach as dictated by the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois since January. Innovative had the doses as part of a deal with Chicago Public Schools to give vaccines to employees. CDPH said it has identified new providers to inoculate those scheduled to get a dose through Innovative and that CPS personnel with existing appointments won't be affected. Tribune Publishing's board favors Alden Global Capital's bid over a higher offer from hotel tycoon Stuart Bainham Jr., who offered to pay $18.50 per share for the Chicago-based newspaper company, topping Alden Global Capital's deal by 7%. Cranes reporter Ali Marotti is covering the story in detail at chicagobusiness.com. Tribune Publishing directors are recommending that shareholders accept a takeover bid from hedge fund Alden Global Capital, even though a Maryland hotel magnate would pay more to buy the publisher of the Chicago Tribune and other large daily newspapers. Now, the hotel magnate is named Stuart W. Bainham Jr., and he offered last week to buy the Tribune for eighteen fifty a share. That tops Alden's offer, which was seventeen twenty five a share, which they made last month. Now, Alden already owns a 32% stake in Tribune Publishing, and part of the reason that the board chose to back Alden's offer is because Alden had indicated that it would vote its shares against any deal from any other bidder. Additionally, Bainham's bid was contingent on financing he had not yet secured. Alden, which owns a 32% stake in the company, is known for making deep cuts to newsrooms at the newspapers that it controls. Local journalists at the Chicago Tribune and at other newspapers that the company publishes have been searching for local ownership for some time now. When reports surfaced last week that Bainham may be looking for other investors to help buy the entire company, that hope surged. As part of Alden's proposed deal to buy the company, a nonprofit controlled by Bainham was set to buy the Baltimore Sun and two smaller Maryland papers for $65 million. Now that could still happen if the Alden deal goes through. Tribune Publishing's board released Bainham from a confidentiality agreement, allowing him to seek financing for his new $18.50 per share bid. New city rules would cover workers getting vaccines. As COVID-19 eligibility opens up to a large majority of the city's adults on Monday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot introduced an ordinance Wednesday morning that would bar employers from terminating, disciplining, or retaliating against any workers who take time off to get their vaccines. The city council already passed an anti-retaliation ordinance that says employers can't take adverse action against workers for obeying public health orders that require them to stay home to minimize COVID transmission 
transmission, recover from coronavirus symptoms, obey a quarantine or isolation order, or to care for family members for the same reasons. Under the new proposal, employers would also be barred from taking adverse action, including termination, demotion, layoff, or punitive schedule changes against any worker for taking time off to get vaccinated. If a worker has paid sick leave or accrued time available, bosses must let them use that time to get their shot. And if an employer requires a COVID vaccination, it must pay their employees if the vaccine is offered during a shift, up to two hours per dose. Once passed, the ordinance would be enforced by the Chicago Office of Labor Standards within the Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. Violators would face fines between $1,000 and $5,000 per offense. Downtown Alderman Brendan Riley is moving to change the zoning on the Thompson Center in a step that state officials hope will help sell the property. Riley will introduce an ordinance at a city council meeting that would double the amount of density a developer could build on the full city block, bounded by LaSalle, Clark, Lake, and Randolph streets to roughly 2 million square feet. And the change would clear the way for a buyer to redevelop the 36-year-old property. Crane's commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker has the story. One of the most compelling questions facing the future of downtown Chicago right now is what happens to the Thompson Center. I mean, that was the case even before the pandemic when you had this prime piece of loop real estate that could be turned into something else or maybe a few things with the tension that a lot of companies were moving out of the central loop for the West Loop or River North or to be along the river. And by the way, there are some other complexities like the fact that the building intertwines with a CTA station. Now, You throw in the uncertainty of a post-pandemic world where it's hard to say what demand there will be for almost anything at the moment, be it offices or hotels or apartments. So one, how does a buyer value this property? And two, what do they do with it? Is it some sort of reuse? Is it a demolition and redevelopment? The sale of this property will be an important referendum on what real estate developers think about the future core of our city. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's healthcare reporter, Stephanie Goldberg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll meet you right back here next time.